According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn once again to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. I have calculated that if we do indeed spend five weeks in each of these uh, outline points, that uh, our Life of Christ study is likely to take us 244 years. So uh, (laughs) I hope to uh, increase that pace here starting two weeks from today. I have more copies of our Harmony of the Gospel that we are using as an outline. So if you do not have one, make sure you get one before you go. We have completed the section called Introduction to Jesus Christ, which had three portions to it. We are now in the midst of the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. That section has 17 portions to it. Then we will get into Truths About John the Baptist, which has 12 sections. comes primarily from John, the Gospel of John, that is. Then uh, the fourth section, which is the longest of the entire uh, ministry of Jesus Christ, is the Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. That has uh, 56 portions to it. Then the, uh, the last Judean and Perean ministry. And then his final week. And uh, the final week has 41 sections. And then there's a 13-portion uh, section on the uh, resurrection through the ascension. So that kind of gives you a, a rough guide as far as where this is going to go. Um, I do believe once we complete Luke 1 here that we will pick up uh, considerably. But I do want to take the time in these introductory lessons particularly as we deal with the announcement to the virgin, as we deal with the virgin birth, as we deal again this morning with the necessity for the virgin birth, I think that we're laying significant groundwork that's going to really bear fruit down the road. So I don't mind taking time, and this is what our 12th or 13th lesson in this, I don't mind taking the time to do that kind of groundwork and that kind of homework because I know it's going to bear fruit down the road. Otherwise, I think the uh, the actual narrative of the life of Christ is going to go pretty quickly. I think many of the events are events that we know quite well. Many of the miracles, many of the parables and so forth um, are going to actually flow pretty quickly in the process of this study. All right, before we begin any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, once again, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your mercy, thankful for your faithfulness in our lives, and thankful for a new day that you've set before us. And Father, we obviously don't have 244 more years of physical life to to, uh, pursue a study such as this. We may not even have 244 days, 244 hours, or even 244 minutes. Father, uh, we can hear that trumpet at any moment. And uh, we desire to be found faithful when our Savior does indeed descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. So, Father, uh, motivate each one of us to live under the doctrine of imminency. 
motivate each one of us to redeem the time because the days are evil, and motivate each one of us to live our lives in such a manner as to give maximum glory to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray these things. Amen. All right, our study at this point in the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary, verses 26 through 38 of the uh, first chapter here of Luke, we have uh, dealt with a number of issues, including the land of Galilee, including the uh, announcement of Gabriel. Gabriel comes to the Virgin and... I've actually neglected, I usually put little cheat sheets up here for myself to uh, remind myself of which slide these are. Alright, that's slide 8. We've also looked at the uh, salutation as it comes, Hail Mary full of grace. And we spent some time on that last week. The uh, salutation that he gives to her in verses 28 and 29, coming in he said to her, Greetings favored one, the Lord is with you. And uh, she was very perplexed at this statement, but kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And we uh, spent some time breaking this down for you and showed you the uh, repeated references to grace. Even the word hail, even the word greetings is in, a, in effect a declaration of grace coming as it is in the uh, vocative of address, simply speaking, Kyra, which is grace. And then he calls her favored one, which is recipient of grace. And uh, spent some time to break down for you why the perfect passive participle is uh, has the impact that it has, that Mary is the recipient of grace, that Mary has received grace in the past with present ongoing results, the nature of a perfect passive participle, that she is endowed with grace, Relating it over to you and I in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, that we have been blessed with the Father's grace. Not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it. That each one of us as church age believers are in fact favored ones. We are endowed with grace the same way we are even more so than Mary was endowed with grace as an Old Testament saint. All right. We'll break down more of these things for you, particularly when we get to Elizabeth's song to Mary here in this very same chapter, where uh, Mary uh, rejoices, she, and where Elizabeth rejoices and says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Uh, she doesn't say, Blessed are you above all other women, but among women, and the, uh, the fruit of the womb being the provision for the birth of the humanity of Jesus Christ. So... Um, We'll deal with those when we talk about Elizabeth's song here in verses 39 through 45. We also dealt with the uh, nature of grace again. Oh, let me put that quote back up there. The Vulgate, gratiae plena, is right if it means full of grace which thou hast received. It is wrong if you take full of grace to mean uh, full of grace which thou hast to bestow. And that, of course, is the Catholic position that Mary is the one who is full of grace as, as presents or goodies or, or uh, items to be bestowed. Remember, the Catholic position on grace is not so much a sphere, not so much a concept as it is actually a, uh, a, a system of brownie points, as it were, that they are objects that can be accumulated and that you know I can accumulate a certain number of, of grace, grace blessings or grace items 
And Mary has all of them because she's full of grace and so she can bestow grace. And the idea of grace under the Roman concept is that you accumulate these grace benefits by observing the sacraments, by partaking of the Mass, by praying the Rosary, by doing all these items. And so they have very much turned grace away from the concept of a sphere or a, or a principle and they have turned it into um, a system of, of, of merits, which is ultimately the opposite of grace, is it not? <laughs> when you come to stacking up brownie points and you come to accumulating merit, you know, accumulating items, it's like you have a whole horde of grace over here. All that is is merit, which is the opposite of grace. Grace says we have no merit and can't earn any, can't deserve any. So uh, I appreciated Plummer's quote there from the International Critical Commentary that it is full of grace which thou hast received accurately translating the perfect passive participle that we observed there in verse 28. Under point 4, Gabriel announces that Mary's son would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant promises and much of our time last week was focused on the Davidic covenant. Alright, so that's slide 13. I jot these notes down successfully and I won't have to do this again next time. And... Uh, the Davidic covenant is one of the primary covenants. I would encourage every believer of this church or any church to understand the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. And uh, one of the greatest resources you could have on any of that would be, uh, I think, the original Schofield Reference Bible, the Schofield Study Notes, that broke down the individual covenants of Scripture in very clear and simple terms. And that would be a fruitful study for any believer to uh, to partake. All right, the next slide, Mary's question does not reflect a sense of unbelief, but a sense of wonder. So with point five, we can now gain new ground here. Point five, Mary's question does not reflect a sense of unbelief, but a sense of wonder. A sense of wonder. So let's look at her question, verses 34 through 38. And in particular, we can contrast it with Zacharias's question, which we've already examined. Zacharias's question was one of skepticism, was one of doubt. When Zacharias asked his question, remember the angel came to him and gave him the good news, he's going to have a, a son and the son's going to have a role in, in heralding the Christ. And Zacharias asked a question and he asked how. He asked how. And the difference between Zacharias's question of how and Mary's question of how is quite significant. Mary says in verse 34, how can this be? In other words, how is this going to come about? How is this going to happen? Zechariah's question uh, focuses on the certainty of the information itself. Not how is this going to happen, but how do I know this is going to happen? Mary had no doubt that this was going to happen. Her knowledge was determined by virtue of the promise. And that is essentially the definition of faith, that we are placing our confidence or trust in the certainty of a promise that has been extended. So Mary proceeded on the basis of faith. We don't want to identify these questions as being similar simply because they start with the question, with the interrogative, how? So just looking at it here for the moment, Mary said to the angel, how? But she says, how can this be? How can this be since I am a virgin? She's not asking, how do I know this is going to happen? She knows it's going to happen. She has no doubt that it's going to happen. But she's asking, how can this be? How, 
by what mechanism is this reality going to be uh, unfolded? Quite different from Zacharias's question in verse 18, where he says, how will I know this for certain? In other words, Zacharias has not yet acknowledged the facts. He has not yet acknowledged the reality of what is going to occur. And Gabriel calls him on it. Gabriel flat out puts him under divine discipline. He says, uh, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words. Zacharias did not accept the message from God on the basis of faith. But Mary does. And that's a significant difference. I think too often, when you read the commentaries, you read different approaches to this verse, they, they find the, the similarities between the questions. Mary asks how, Zacharias asks how. Mary gives um, uh, additional conditions for her question. She says, since I am a virgin. Zacharias gives additional conditions for his question. He says, since I'm an old guy. <laughs> Alright? If, if you're going to leave it at that and say, okay, the questions are identical, you're wrong. Yes, his question starts with how. Yes, he gives additional uh, considerations for his question, since I'm an old guy. And you just have it there in verse 18. How? He says, for, explanatory gar, I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So he has the question how, and he has additional um, uh, considerations for why he's asking this question. Mary likewise, her sentence in verse 34 starts with a how, and she gives additional consideration for why she's posing this question. She says, since I am a virgin. Now on the surface of it, these questions seem similar. But I think as we've already indicated, they are not similar, they are quite different. That she is asking how in the process not doubting the facts. Zacharias is asking how and doubting the facts. And I hope that distinction then becomes quite obvious. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Not how do I know this will be, but how can this be since I am a virgin? She is, she is requesting information regarding the process, but not doubting the facts. And so when the angel answers her, the angel answers her and does not give her the rebuke that, Ga that uh, Zacharias received. In other words, I've been sent from God. This is God's promise. Why are you doubting God's promise? He does not go into that realm, but he actually spells out the mechanics. He spells out the process. He tells her how it's going to happen. He tells her how it is that the impregnation is going to occur. So the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. So that in addition to explaining the mechanics for how a virgin will become pregnant, he also gives a um, contemporary miracle as evidence that God is currently at work in this present generation. Remember, this in 400 years. 400 years since a, uh, a prophet has been among Israel in terms of writing Scripture since Malachi, since the Old Testament has been concluded. And so by showing that there is a, 
another miracle already in the works, six months old in fact, in, in Elizabeth's pregnancy, that then gives additional promise or weight to the promise of, uh, of Mary's uh, pregnancy here that's about to come upon her. So Mary's question does not reflect a sense of unbelief, but a sense of wonder. She doesn't doubt what's going to happen. And in fact, she's excited about it. In fact, she's eager to find out, well, how is this going to happen? See, kind of like when you announce something exciting to your children and, and they want to know more. They want to know more details, for example. You know, we're going to have a trip to uh, Washington State and the kids all of a sudden... I'm giving a hypothetical here, so Bob, don't get excited. But I say, hey, we're going to go to Washington State. And so the children get alongside. Well, how? Uh, when are we leaving? How are we going to get there? What route are we going to take? What things might we see along the way? All right. And this excitement is reflected here. Now, you'll notice the, uh, the promise has been given and the promise is not doubted. And uh, additional information is requested and additional information is provided. And then uh, even the uh, contemporaneous miracle of Elizabeth having a baby is given there in verse 36. And we have no idea how old Elizabeth is. Stop and consider when you were 12, 14, 16. We don't know how young Mary is at this point. Let's just say she's... 14 or 16 or whatever, 14 probably. Um, when you were 14, who did you consider to be old? <laughs> All right. It may have been somebody in their 40s and you thought, my goodness, they're ancient. I remember my dad turned 40. I thought, goodness. I thought that was absolutely old. Couldn't believe it. So, um, however old Elizabeth is, she's old enough for Mary to be to consider her, you know, over the hill. For nothing will be impossible with God. There's a, a wonderful promise that we uh, often claim. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. The bond slave of the Lord. Not the queen of heaven. <laughs> all right. Not the mediatrix of all redemption. The bond slave of the Lord. The slave of the very child that she's about to give birth to. This is one of those paradoxes. It's like when Christ caught the, the Pharisees in that dilemma. And he said, when the Christ appears, is he going to be the son of God or is he going to be the son of David? And they uh, thought they were so slick because they knew the answer. They said, well, he's going to be the son of David. And he says, well, then how come David calls him Lord? If he's the son of David, why does David call him Lord? And like here's Mary giving birth to the humanity of Christ. She's, he's the son of Mary in terms of the, you know, the body of his humanity. But yet she's his bondservant. How does that happen? And, and the Pharisees, well, we understand how it happens. It happens because of the pre-existent glory of God the Son and his deity. But uh, the Pharisees were left without, uh, without an answer at that point. Likewise, I think the, Romans have a, the, the Roman church has a hard time with their positions uh, in acknowledging this verse that uh, Mary is herself the bond slave of, uh, of the very child that she brings into the world. May it be done to me according to your word. And this is the essence of faith. This is the essence of faith rest. You identify the promise of God. You identify the will of God through his word and you submit to it. Say thy will be done. 
Zacharias did not reply with faith, Mary did, and that's a significant uh, observation here of chapter 1. Now, I'm going to spend some time this morning on an exegesis of Luke 135. So under point 6, an exegesis of Luke 135, and we're going to correlate it back with Matthew chapter 1. Uh, not Matthew 1, 1, but Matthew 1, 18 and 20. Matthew 1, 18 and 20. Not sure why that uh, slide looks that way. All right, it's an exegesis of Luke 1, 35, correlated with Matthew 1, 18 and 20. Luke 1, 35, correlated with Luke, Matthew 1, 18 and 20. All right. Because I, I mentioned this just briefly last week with respect to teaching that our former pastor gave us once upon a time. And I want to I work on it a little bit this morning with some exegesis and spend some time on it just to, uh, to uh, clear up something. And then we'll proceed on to point seven and, and wrap up our whole look here at the virgin birth. Uh, Luke one thirty five in explaining the mechanics, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. All right. This is showing the mechanics of how a virgin becomes impregnated, how a virgin, how the, the egg in her womb actually becomes fertilized and how the the body that is then formed contains the personality, the act, the being and person of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's described in this verse. And it is, in many respects, the only verse in Scripture that describes the process, although Matthew 1 addresses it um, generally. Luke describes it specifically. Matthew describes it generally. All right. Matthew 1, verse 18 says, The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that is, before they, the, the betrothment became a marriage, became a, uh, a one flesh relationship, uh, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. All right. By, through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 when he had considered this, that is, considered divorcing her, behold, an angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her, or begotten in her, that is, the begotten child in her, is of the Holy Spirit. So we have both by and in verse 18 and of in verse 20. And likewise, back to Luke now, we have the actual um, process of this spelled out that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. All right? So let's spell some of these out because I mentioned last week um, a... Uh, teaching that uh, that Ralph Braun had given us in terms of the 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 father uh, the role of God the Father in this impregnation as opposed to the role of the Holy Spirit in this impregnation and I wanted to to spend some time on the text to uh, explain why I'm still wrestling with that teaching all right we'll start with subpoint a Luke 135. Luke 135, 
and I uh, just put the Greek text up there, although this being daylight hours, it's going to be a little bit hard to read. Pneuma, that's spirit. Hagion, that's Holy Spirit. Epelusatai, shall come upon you. And um, uh, I'll give you vocabulary on that here in the moment. This is uh, one of two things that's going to happen to Mary. But Pneuma Hagion, Epelusatai, Episa, upon you. Kai Dunamis, that's power. Hoopsistu, of the Most High, or of the Ultimate, uh, will overshadow you. Episkiase soy. Okay? For this reason, that's Diokai, for this reason also, right here, the Holy Begotten One will be called the Son of God. Okay? The Huyas Theu. Now, under this, so if you want to just keep notes, Subpoint A is Luke 135. Subpoint 1. Two things will happen to Mary. There are two verbs in this verse. Two things will happen to Mary. And if I put this back up here again, I'll just simply underline them. Um, the, the pronoun se and the pronoun soy there uh, are the same pronoun. It's referring to you. It's referring to you, singular, Mary. And it's describing the two things that are going to happen to her. Alright, the first one is this long verb here. The second one is that long verb there. Come upon you, overshadow you. And we see that in the English text. Come upon you, overshadow you. Those are the two things that are going to happen to her. And because of this, singular, so the, the two things are actually contemporaneous, because of this, singular, the holy begotten child within you shall be called the Son of God. Alright? So two things are going to happen. First of all, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. Now we can spend a month on Eperkamai to come upon. Eperkamai to come upon. 1904. Erkamai is simply a verb to come or to go. Ep, when you put the prefix epi in front of it, it's to come upon. You've got erkamai, which all by itself, E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I. Erkamai means to come, it means to go. But when you put the prefix epi, it's to come upon. In fact, the epi is given twice because it is eperkamai, epi, sa will come upon, upon you. If we were to give the prefixes their full redundancy, the Holy Spirit will come upon, upon you. The vocabulary alone doesn't necessarily help us because eperkamai sometimes means to attack. <laughs> you know? If, uh, like you read many times, uh, you know, uh, David fell upon... Uh, Goliath or, or uh, Joab fell upon Abner. The idea of coming upon somebody is often associated with, with violence and, and death. So if we're not careful, we could read here, the Holy Spirit will, the Holy Spirit will attack you. <laughs> no, 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 slow down. Uh, vocabulary does not always help us in terms of uh, translation, in terms of handling a text. Because there is so much there is so much variety to the uh, to the language itself where coming upon could be for love, obviously, could be for violence, could be for any particular purpose. 
So the first phrase does not necessarily help us in terms of rendering this. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. It could simply, when, when the subject of Epikramai uh, is, uh, is the Holy Spirit, uh, the idea of coming upon somebody uh, to us communicates filling, the filling of the Holy Spirit. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We become filled with the Holy Spirit. I think the use of Epikramai, uh, again, in uh, the same author here, we leave Luke and we go to Acts, we find a uh, use of Epikramai by the same author, and uh, the promise in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, has eperkamai episa, upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. All right. Um, essentially, what's going to happen here is that Mary is going to become a spirit-filled Old Testament saint which didn't happen very often in the Old Testament. We take it for granted because every born-again believer in the church age is indwelled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by God for spiritual service. Very rarely in the Old Testament did the Holy Spirit come upon somebody. Holy Spirit came upon Samson and he had all his works of strength. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul and he would prophesy. The Holy Spirit came upon um, uh, Gideon in his endeavors. When the Holy Spirit came upon somebody, that was the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit for an Old Testament saint. And other than Moses and David, no one else enjoyed, I think those are the two, enjoyed lifelong indwellings of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, like you and I enjoy as church-age saints. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, that doesn't necessarily explain the pregnancy. Obviously, if we got pregnant every time we were filled with the Holy Spirit, <laughs> you ladies would be in trouble. Because <laughs> you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit all the time, don't you? Now, the second phrase of what's going to happen to her the power of the Most High will overshadow her. The power of the Most High will overshadow her. And this is the, pro is the step in the process that explains the fertilization of the seed, the I'm sorry, the fertilization of the womb and the impregnation of the virgin. The power of the Most High. Dunamis is power. Hupsistu is the ultimate, the highest the pinnacle. And episkiadzo is to cast a shadow over. To cast a shadow over. So the power of the Most High will episkiadzo her, will overshadow her. We have the same episkiadzo in Luke 9, verses 34 and 35. Luke 9, 34 and 35. The same episkiadzo, same author, same book. By examining the same author, same book, we see the usage of the term. Luke 9, 34 and 35. Peter's all excited because he gets to see uh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he jumps right up and he starts blabbing his mouth. He's got all these ideas. He wants to start building tabernacles. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, episkiadzo them. And this is the direct work of God the Father. When he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, 
My chosen one, listen to him. Direct patriological statement. The voice of the Father was audibleized and heard by Peter, James, and John on the Mount of the Transfiguration in the context of the overshadowing, the episkiazo that occurs there in verse 34. So the Holy Spirit comes upon her. That is, like the Old Testament saints that were then spirit-filled, spirit-indwelled and spirit-filled. But then the power of the Most High. Now, in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Most High is the Father. In terms of the organization of Trinity and the submission of the Son and the Holy Spirit to the will of the Father, we understand the Most High, El Elyon in the Old Testament, is the Father. Will overshadow her. Will overshadow her. So, looking at the Father's role in this, then point two because of this, the Spirit empowerment and the Father's overshadowing, the Holy Begotten One will be called the Son of God. The Holy Begotten One will be called the Son of God. Huias Theu. Huias Theu. So, we have agency. We have agency, but we have achievement. And I don't want to lose you on this this morning. Because the, the use of agency in Matthew, well, we'll get to that under point B, um, I think confuses it. We look at the role of the Holy Spirit and we say, okay, the Holy Spirit fathered the humanity of Christ, but is that what it's really saying? Because this passage gives us the mechanics. Matthew gives us simply the, the agency. Alright? And I don't wanna, I don't wanna lose, uh, lose sight of this. So before I get to that, let's look at the Matthew passage now under point B. Okay? Just keep in mind that when you deal with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God the Son, the second member of Trinity, is He the Son of the Father or is He the Son of the Holy Spirit? He's the Son of the Father. Okay, so now when we deal with hypostatic union and we deal with Jesus Christ in his humanity upon this earth, undiminished deity, true humanity, united together in one person forever, and he's called the Son of God, is that God the Father? Or is that God the Holy Spirit? Okay, I think too often we've, uh, uh, we've assigned the, the fatherhood of his humanity to the Holy Spirit, and I think that's a problem. All right, because it's inconsistent with the fatherhood of his, of his, uh, of his deity. Now, join me in Matthew chapter one. Let's look at these two verses. Matthew chapter one, verse eighteen and verse twenty. Matthew chapter one, point B. Matthew chapter one, eighteen and twenty. We have two verses: verse eighteen and verse twenty. All right. We have, uh, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. She was discovered to be pregnant. She was discovered to be pregnant. In other words, she has something in gastry. 
talk about gastrological issues. She's got a gastrological issue. <laughs> it's a baby inside of there. And it is Ek. Ek. Get my pen back up and working here. Ek. Of or from Numatus Hagiu, from the Holy Spirit. The uh, prefix or the uh, preposition there being Ek. Of the Holy Spirit. Let me erase my pen notes. I practiced this for a while and I, I uh, have forgotten how to erase those pen notes. Nope, that's not it. There we go. Found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit is providing the empowerment for it, does that necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit is the one who's actually doing it? We'll have to answer that question ourselves. The second verse, in verse 20, uh, when he had considered this, that is, considered divorcing her, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And once again, we have ek. We have ek. So it's in both verse 18 and verse 20 is the, is the preposition ek. Pneumatus hagiu. Now, we, we, in the lexicons, in the, in the definitions, and if you want something really fun, look up the word of in a dictionary. And you find eight pages of material. Because how many ofs are there in the Bible? All right, There's a lot of them. But in expressions which have to do with begetting and birth, the preposition ek refers to from, of, or by. It introduces the role of the other partner in the conception. In other words, if you're talking to a woman and she has a child, it is by a man. If you're talking to a man and he's going to have a son, it is by a woman. Okay, And so we have examples of this. Not only in Matthew 1, verses 18 and 20, but Romans 9, 10, Matthew 1, verses 3 and 5. We have ek that's utilized to show the other uh, instrument of the, uh, of the pregnancy. Okay? So, the examples here, the, and it goes both through both genders. Uh, Romans 9, 10 is specifically with relationship to... Um, Specifically with relationship to uh, Rebecca. It says not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, that's Ek, one man, our father Isaac. So Rebecca was pregnant, she was she had conceived twins, and the instrument of that impregnation was Isaac. In Matthew 1, verses 3 and 5, the genealogy listing of Christ, we have the preposition ek once again in the context of pregnancy. In this case, it is the other gender. It is referencing the, the uh, female. In verse 3, it says um, that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. By Tamar. Okay? Ek. Tamar. And likewise, verse 5, uh, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Alright? By or of, from, through the instrumentality of Ruth. 
Boaz could have never become Obed's father without Ruth. Okay? Now, all of this is to say that we have instruments and we have uh, causes. All right? Instruments and causes. And I, I don't want to confuse those issues um, between instruments and causes. The, um, because we have the same thing in the church age. We have the same thing today for how you and I function in the local church, how you and I function in the Christian way of life. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit was given to us from the moment we were saved, and the Holy Spirit empowers us each and every time we confess our sins, and throughout all of our time in spirituality, He is empowering us. But is the Holy Spirit the one who is actively doing the work? Or is the Holy Spirit simply providing the empowerment in which somebody else can do the work? That's my question. My answer is yes. God the Father is the one who is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And I hope that we can understand that distinction as well. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. But it is the Father who is at work within us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And by the way, this only happens this only happens in its fullness when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and when we are abiding in Christ. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ, then the Father is fully at work in us. We've got some studies coming up on this, by the way. Studies we're going to do on this in 1 Corinthians about the indwelling of the Trinity. Not just being filled with the Holy Spirit, but filled to all the fullness of God. So we'll tackle that as well from Ephesians 3 and, uh, and elsewhere. So... This is why, with the Holy Spirit providing the, the, uh, the privacy, so to speak, with the Holy Spirit providing the empowerment, so to speak, we can accurately state, as Pastor Ralph Braun did all those years ago, and it just, like I said, when I first got that teaching, it just blew me away. I never heard that before. I'd always thought that the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary and she had a baby, and it was Jesus Christ. But then the closer look of the exegesis of, of, uh, of uh, Luke convinced me that no, it's the Father's role in the role of overshadowing, in the role of, of the uh, creation of the humanity of Christ. In any event, that's 15 minutes worth of work to say, does it really matter? <laughs> Is this something I'm going, to div- I'm going to part fellowship on? Of course not. Is this something that, ultimately speaking, whether it was the Father or the Holy Spirit, regardless, in His humanity, Jesus Christ was born in that manger in Bethlehem, and He was born sinless. And that's the effect of why the, the human Father had to be removed from the process. Alright? So... I'm not going to part fellowship with people that insist that it was the Holy Spirit who impregnated Mary. Even though I believe it was the Father who impregnated Mary. Alright? And uh, more of that will come into play in more patriological studies as we come to them. Now, at point seven, the last point of study here, the necessity of the virgin birth. The necessity of the... I'm going to give you five reasons why... 
Jesus Christ had to be born of a virgin. Five reasons why. You might be able to come up with some more. Okay? Five reasons why. Why Joseph couldn't be born, or why Joseph could not be the biological father of the human body of Jesus Christ. Okay? First of all, A, I mean, there's specific reasons, and, and there may be, like I say, more than five of these, but God intended to bring a Savior into the world. And it could not happen if Mary literally married Joseph and they partook of sexual activity and she got pregnant like every other woman in the history of the world has gotten pregnant. Okay? It had to be virgin birth, and this is why. A, to preserve the Davidic line and yet fulfill the curse of Jeconiah. To preserve the Davidic line and yet fulfill the, the curse of Jeconiah. And this, of all the five reasons, is one of my favorite. Just because I love the Scripture so much. To preserve the Davidic line, and yet to fulfill the curse of Jeconiah. All right? The Davidic line we have referenced all throughout. Um, I just simply gave you Matthew 1, verses 1, 6, and 12. But you could also go back to the Davidic Covenant, the, the verses we gave you last week in 2 Samuel 7, the uh, Davidic Covenant, the promises in Isaiah uh, 11. There's no question that the Christ had to be of the seed of David and that the Christ was going to fulfill the Davidic Covenant. Um, and this is repeatedly the issue in Matthew 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, fulfillment of Abrahamic covenant, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, your son shall sit upon the throne and shall rule. Verse uh, 6, uh, the, the hinge here of all the genealogy is David. That we trace the line down to David the king and then we start again with David the father of Solomon and we, and we uh, trace the kingly line. That takes us down to verse 12. Then after the deportation to Babylon, we have Jeconiah. And Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Now now we have the line of David that never did become kings. Rightfully, they were descendants of David. Rightfully, they would have been kings, except they were swept away to Babylon. And Jeconiah was placed under a curse. So let's join me back in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. And I, and, I, and I love this. This is, uh, of all these five reasons, this is uh, among my favorite. Jeremiah, chapter 22, and verse 30. See, from David on down, we have all the Davidic sons who were kings. Solomon, Rehoboam, and on down. But with Jeconiah and his sons... They weren't kings. Jeremiah 22.30, and uh, he's called Kaniah, the shorter form of Jeconiah. Same guy, don't, don't get confused, because of the difference between the, the Hebrew spelling here and the, the Greek spelling in Matthew. Um, 
Verse 24, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. He removes his signet ring. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man Kaniah a despised shattered jar? Is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they have not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. Just record him as having no heir. A man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. This is the curse of Jeconiah. Now, here we have what appears to be a contradiction. And I love these. Almost like, you know, we dealt with the geographical contradictions of, well, uh, Micah says he's born in Bethlehem and, and Hosea says out of Egypt I will call my son and, and uh, Isaiah says uh, the land of Galilee of the Gentiles from you a light will shine forth and uh, we're left with all these contradictions and well what is it? Is it Bethlehem? Is it Galilee? Is it Egypt? Where is the Christ going to come from? It appears to be contradictory. Until we get to the New Testament we find that they're all true. Bethlehem, Nazareth, Galilee uh, and Egypt. All right? Likewise here, God made promises. A son of David will rule forever. And we have the Davidic king line all the way down from David to Solomon to Rehoboam all the way down to Jehoiakim and Jeconiah. And then God curses Jeconiah, cuts it off and says, Jeconiah, no son of yours will sit on the throne. So this appears to be a contradictory promise. Because a son of David has to sit on the throne forever. But a son of Jeconiah cannot sit on the throne. Ever. It appears to be contradictory. Until God puts in place a virgin birth. Until God brings into this world a son of David who is not a son of Jeconiah. Because he had no human father. So you see how both are true. Son of David is still fulfilled. But son of Jeconiah is still fulfilled because he is not the biological descendant of Joseph. All right? Again, we see this back in the genealogy of of Matthew chapter 1. And this is, uh, without the virgin birth, Jesus Christ would fall under the curse of Jeconiah. He'd be a son of Jeconiah and God would say, nope. You don't qualify. When you uh, you have David in verse 6, Solomon in verse 7, and Rehoboam, and you go on down. Josiah in verse 11 became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And God took off the signet ring and He removed the Davidic throne over Judah. Judah has not had a Davidic king ever since that point of time. Not until Jesus Christ is restored to the Davidic throne. Second Advent. He didn't even claim it in First Advent. Second Advent, he will be seated on the Davidic throne. And so you have the sons of Jeconiah. 
Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abihud, Eliakim, Azor. Okay? These are not as well known to us because they're post-exilic. Most of them are intertestamental. None of them became kings. All right? The ones from David to, to uh, Jeconiah we know a little bit more of because they were kings and they're featured in First and Second Kings. So we know some of their stories. But the line from Jeconiah down to Joseph we don't know as well other than what's recorded here in the genealogy. Eliud, in verse 15, was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Now, you'll notice it doesn't say Joseph was the father of, of Jesus. That, that whole language of was the father of, was the father of, was the father of, ends with um, Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph. And then he says, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Mashiach, the, the Christos, the Christ. So, the necessity of the virgin birth is necessary to preserve the Davidic line and yet fulfill the curse of Jeconiah. He's a son of David and legal heir of David legal heir of Solomon, legal heir of Rehoboam, legal heir all the way down, even legal heir of, of Jeconiah, legal heir of Shealtiel, legal heir of Zerubbabel, and uh, legal heir, but not biological son of, Zechani of uh, Jeconiah. All right, second reason why virgin birth was necessary, to give birth to mighty God. To give birth to mighty God. It says here that he shall be called Quiostetu, the Son of God. Because he didn't have a biological father, a biological human father. The father of his biological life was God the Father. Isaiah 9 6, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God. John 1 34 and 49. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 12. That Jesus Christ is God Himself. In John 1, I think you're familiar with Isaiah 9, 6. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Alright, John 1. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathanael understood Psalm 2. Pharisees had a big problem with it. <laughs> they liked the Son of David. They had a big issue with Son of God. And they really went conniption over Son of Man. When you look at the titles that Jesus Christ had, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David, they loved the Son of David part. They had issues with Son of God. They called it blasphemy for him to make himself out to be God. And uh, Son of Man really threw them for a loop. We'll see that throughout this study over the next couple of years as we break down this study. But join me in Psalm 2 and you'll see that the coming Christ is God. The coming King is God. 
Nathaniel understood that. When he said, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Because in verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here is the king who is the begotten son of God. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with earthenware. When Jesus Christ rules this world in the millennium, He will do so through enforced discipline. This world is not going to like being ruled from Jerusalem by Jesus Christ. And nations are going to rebel. Nations are going to hate it. When they get so prideful that they that their murmuring can come out from under the surface, they will boycott the uh, Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem and then those nations will have their rain cut off. This is the nations in an uproar from verse 1. The peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. And they're all going to gather together and boycott one by one by one by one until... And we may find out that by the end of the millennium, when Gog and Magog is ready for the for the revolution, that every nation is. Uh, it may be that in year one thousand, every nation chooses. Forget it. We're not going to the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, as Jesus Christ rules them with a rod of iron. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ, saying, "Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us." We no longer want to be bound by Jesus Christ. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So he's called my king in verse 6. He's called my son in verse 7. The king of Israel, the Christ of God, as he's called in verse 2, is in fact the son in verse 7. You will also notice verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. See, the Son is God, worthy of homage, worthy of worship. You are not to worship any human king. The Gentiles do that. The Gentiles lift up Caesar and say, here's God. Or the, the Gentiles lift up Pharaoh and say, there's God. Babylonians lifted up uh, their kings and said, this is God. And they had the, the king cults of the, of the ancient world. But this king is God. And Psalm 2 says so. And Nathaniel testified to that in John 1, verse 49, when he said, You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And they understood that. So the necessity of the virgin birth to preserve the Davidic line and yet fulfill the curse of Jeconiah to give birth to mighty God. Thirdly, to give birth to true humanity. He had to be born to be human, to actually enter into a human body. Now, the, you, you theorize, well, maybe other mechanisms could have been put in place. You know, Adam wasn't born. God took some dust and fashioned a body and breathed life into him, and Adam was born. That would have created a human body, but it would not have created a descendant of David. Okay? To give birth to true humanity, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. 
Romans 1.3. Hebrews 2.11.14 and 17. I'm running out of time already. 1 John 4.2. Like the demoniac that came to my office door yesterday kept shouting at me. I'm studying angels, by the way. I'm studying angels, demons, fallen angels, getting into some angelic conflict. And every time I do study those realms of Scripture, we get attacked. And sure enough, this Fruit Loop came by yesterday and started shouting at me and all these things. Told me he was an apostle. was trying to straighten me out. I told him he was not an apostle. He was a false apostle and commanded him to depart. And he did. But 1 John 4.2 was this wonderful text. And we'll, we'll deal with this next week. 2 John 7. Two other reasons, his sinless perfection. Point D, for his sinless perfection. If, he was, if Joseph was his real father, then he'd have a sin nature. And he'd have all of Joseph's sin patterns, the sins of the father. He'd have all of Joseph's sin patterns. He'd be a fallen creature. He would need a Savior. He couldn't be the Savior because he'd be, he'd be a sinner. And he would need a Savior. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 1.19. 1 Peter 2.22, 1 John 3.5. Just jot these down and look them up and we'll, uh, we'll deal with them at more length next week. For his sinless perfection. I hate going long on Wednesdays. Does she, does she still have class? Okay. Yeah. But i gotta, I got to go so our nursery worker isn't late. I'd hate, hate for her to flunk out of college and be all my fault because I made her five minutes late on a Wednesday afternoon. Um. 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 1.19, 1 Peter 2.22, 1 John 3.5 for his sinless perfection. And then finally, to give birth to the last Adam. To give birth to the last Adam. Romans 5.14, 1 Corinthians 15.45. That goes along with being sinless and perfect. To give birth to the last Adam. It's quite interesting Trace the genealogy of Luke backwards. Remember, the genealogy of Matthew goes down, the genealogy of Luke goes up. And when we trace it back and we have, we're, we're following the, the lineage in uh, his humanity, and we have uh, the son of, 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 the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the son of God. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, was the son of God, same as Adam. First Adam, last Adam. In Romans 5.14 and 1 Corinthians 15.45. Those will be verses we will also look at next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. Pray that this message would become a source of encouragement, challenge, and blessing. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.